From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The word of God for the world. Nothing outside of a person can enter and contaminate a person in God's sight. Rather, the things that come out of a person contaminate the person. Just nine short verses after Jesus says that, he's name-calling, uttering disrespectful words to a woman asking for his help. And what's more, Jesus, the great and formidable teacher, champion of Jewish outcasts and sinners, gets schooled. Not by any teacher of the law, but by the very person he insults, a Gentile. Jesus, the great Jewish teacher who so many are flocking to hear, learns an important lesson himself when his unlikely teacher presents him with a choice between hanging on to the ancient purity laws and his religious tradition that he has just decried and practicing the compassionate way he has been calling others to live. I don't know about you, but Jesus' terse and pejorative response to this woman unsettles me. This jarring portrait of him is hard to entertain. Most scholars want to explain it away, 
saying that he is just representing the prevailing view of Judaism, or he's really just exaggerating to make a point. One commentator I read suggested Jesus is probably teasing the woman to see how she will respond. And maybe that's what we should do too. Explain it away with these very credible interpretations. But I pay attention to uncomfortable texts like this, where the fully human Jesus is clearly visible. Because I think we can learn and take comfort from them. I choose to believe that the writer of Mark intended to scandalize his first century readers with this story about the bigotry of none other than Jesus. And certainly this applies to us 21st century readers too. After all, our reality is much the same. Prejudice, hatred, epithet, accusation, self-righteousness, and racial tension are rampant today. This week we saw such horrifying news of the treatment of Syrian and African refugees and migrants. We continue to hear pejorative judgments about immigrants and poor people, those of a different race or sexual orientation than ours, coming from the lips of those who want to be the president of this country. And we dismiss those who are seeking to live faithful lives that put them in conflict with the culture around them. We continue to reach for the easiest of paths when the way gets conflicted, don't we? We are God's chosen. We know what God thinks and who God favors. Those different from us need not apply. If you are listening closely, this is exactly what Jesus says to the Gentile woman asking for his help. That should give us pause. So what can we glean from this unlikely and unsettling story? Let's begin with context. You should know that by now. How is the writer of Mark using this story? If you remember nothing else today, remember this. It's about location, location, location. Three locational pieces of context need to be addressed. Where this story is located in the text, where this story takes place geographically, and Jesus' travel itinerary before and after the scene. Textually, this story is situated in Mark's gospel at the midpoint between the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. The first feeding incident was in Jewish Galilee. The second occurs in the Decapolis, Gentile territory, immediately following Jesus' encounters with the Gentile woman and the Gentile speech and hearing impaired man. That makes the incident a hinge in Mark's gospel, a turning point that connects what has gone before with what comes after. Geographically, the story takes place in the region of Tyre. According to New Testament scholar Mark Culpepper, 
Tyre is an island in Gentile territory some 40 miles north of Galilee, off the coast of what is now Lebanon. This region had a strong economy with many wealthy citizens, but was dependent upon the neighboring Jewish province of Galilee for its grain. Galilee was the breadbasket of that part of the world. Now, this was a mutually beneficial agreement for Syrophoenicia and Galilee, unless or until there was a crisis or a famine. When either of these occurred, the wealthy Tyrians literally bought the bread off the tables of the poorer Jews in Galilee. Culpepper says that the result of this economic situation was that the Jews in the area resented the Gentile dogs for taking the bread off their own children's tables. And notes that the historian Josephus places the people of Tyre and Sidon among the Jews' bitterest enemies. The woman Jesus encountered is one of these Gentile dogs. Jesus' travel itinerary is important too. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been mostly on his own turf, in familiar surroundings, focused on his ministry among the Jews in Galilee. At Mark 7.24, his location changes. He's no longer on his own home turf. He's in unfamiliar, uncharted territory. He's crossed the border into the backyard playground of his people's bitterest enemies. In a sense, the locus of power shifts when he moves north from Galilee into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he becomes the outsider, the stranger, the other. Jesus is in a place to experience firsthand the wisdom Mark Twain later pens. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of people and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all in one's lifetime. All one's lifetime, excuse me. Let me read that again. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of people and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Twain's quip is instructive. Leaving the comfort of home behind and going into new territory can produce change, can force the traveler to examine, and hopefully to reframe or discard altogether uninformed, preconceived, provincial views of those on the other side of the border or the fence. Traveling invites a person to see with clearer eyes, and here with open ears. This is what happens to Jesus. His relational roadmap gets rearranged. He cannot go back to his old worldview after this encounter. Remember, it's about location. With these contextual pieces in place, look more carefully at Jesus' actions. Prior to this event, Jesus has been busy healing, preaching, teaching, and mentoring his disciples, focusing their efforts in the region surrounding the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
near his hometown of Capernaum. Jesus is clear that his mission is to remind the Jews of their calling as God's people in God's kingdom. Prior to the feeding of the 5,000, he receives word that John the Baptist has been killed. After the feeding event, he confronts the Jewish religious leaders over purity laws in the story Jesus preached on last week. Jesus and his disciples have been working 24-7. In addition, he is both grieving significant loss and dealing with criticism from powerful leaders within his religious community. Perhaps he feels alone, depleted, frustrated, and recognizes his need to slow down, get away where no one knows him, and rest. Parenthetically, I went to the beach this week to do just that. In Free For All this week, we speculated that Jesus might have been suffering from what modern-day stress experts call compassion fatigue. Nowadays, there are actual assessments you can take to see if you have this malady. There were no such tests in Jesus' day. But Jesus definitely seems on the edge here, depleted and spent, in need of some serious downtime. His testy, insensitive reply to this woman who shows up unannounced and uninvited reveals just how low his spiritual batteries must have become. Mark portrays a fully human Jesus who gets tired, who is sometimes irritable, who is not always completely clear about what he's called to do. If we can move past our need for Jesus to be perfect and really trust that he lives fully into the tension between divinity and humanity, we can find some grace, comfort, and challenge for our own lives. We, too, live in this in-between space. We are fully human, but we hold the image of God within us, and we are all on a journey toward that fullness of God that resides within. Jesus' life reveals that journey in fast-forward without commercial breaks. We see in him simultaneously both who God is and who we are created to be. When we grasp that, we can see how full of grace this scene from Jesus' life is for us who are trying hard to be good disciples, falling short, losing our way, short-sighted and testy, not always understanding the shape of our obedience to God or the nature of God's call on our lives. The good news for us is that even Jesus has prejudices, blind spots, things to learn. After his exchange with this tenacious Gentile woman, Jesus' understanding of his ministry seems to deepen and widen. The encounter is the catalyst for metanoia, insight, aha. In that human connection with the other, his own eyes and heart are open to the fact that humans are, well, humans. Syrophoenician women love their children and will take risks for them when they suffer, the same as Jewish women do. Gentiles are no different from Jews when it comes to suffering, healing, and the need for care and grace. 
Jesus goes to Gentile territory where no one knows him to get away from it all and ironically comes to a deeper understanding of himself, of God, of the world, and his mission in it. This encounter changes him. The gospel writer highlights that change with two details in those feeding stories. After he feeds 5,000 people in Galilee in chapter 6, there are 12 baskets of food left over, one basket for each of the 12 Jewish tribes, a clear picture of his ministry to the Jews. In chapter 8, after this encounter with the woman, he feeds 4,000 people in Gentile territory with seven baskets left over. The number seven in Jewish scripture represents totality, wholeness. Mark's gospel declares in the subtlest of ways, with 12 baskets and seven, that after his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus' ministry is no longer for Jews only. His ministry is for everybody. Everyone's included, even the dogs. What of this woman? We're not told how she gets in to see Jesus at dinner time. We do know that she thwarts his plan to travel incognito. Her presence is proof that his fame has spread beyond the borders of his own country. She knows enough about him to believe he can help her child. Throwing caution to the wind, she invades his private space to ask for what she needs most. Jesus rudely dismisses her with a pointed racial slur. My healing is for the children of my people, not for little dogs like you. Scholars have written endlessly about what the word kunarion, translated little dog, refers to and how best to interpret it. But suffice it to say that it is a strong and ugly insight to non-Jews, insult to non-Jews placed on the lips of Jesus. Undeterred by this insulting treatment at the hands of the one she hopes can heal her daughter, she responds to his retort with a surprisingly clever and careful rejoinder. Even dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. All I know to say about this is a deeply theological word. Wow. How many times have you walked away from an insult or a quarrel and thought of the perfect thing to say? If I had only said this to that so-and-so, that would have got his or her goat. The human response is to escalate the insult, to hit back. But not this Gentile woman. She lives out a well-known Jewish proverb. A soft answer turns away wrath. She embodies Jesus' own teaching. Love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. And her startling response gets Jesus' attention, softens his spirit, and he immediately bestows the gift of healing she came for. This dramatic reversal reminds us that we judge others at our own peril. People who are different from us sit around God's table too. They have things to teach us that are deep. 
They matter to God, and they must matter to us as well. And we must not dismiss them or reject them because they do not look, act, sound, believe, or live like we do. When the Icelandic government announced this week that it would accept 50 Syrian refugees, its citizens rose up in protest. Yay, Iceland. They started a Facebook page called Syria is Calling, on which they can volunteer their homes and pressure the government to grant more refugees asylum. The page says, Refugees are our future spouses, best friends, our next soulmate, the drummer in our children's band, our next colleague, Miss Iceland 2022, the carpenter who finally fixes our bathroom, the chef in the cafeteria, the fireman, the hacker, and the television host. We want to push our government and show them that we can do better and do so immediately. More than 16,000 people had joined the movement as of last Thursday afternoon. This morning, coming up the mountain, I heard on the news that now the Pope has gotten in the act and that both of the parishes that relate to the Vatican are going to accept a refugee family, and he is encouraging all parishes in Europe to do the same. Anyway, back to Iceland. The, The person who started... The Facebook page offered to pay for the flights of five Syrians and house them with a friend. A well-known Icelandic journalist, ashamed of her country's response to the plight of the refugees, signed up to volunteer with the Red Cross through the site and is now waiting to be assigned a task. I think it's an obligation all of us have to help. If I could help one person or one family, it would be worth it, she said. Another young man and his partner offered to take care of unaccompanied children who need assistance. He explained that they have long wanted to become foster parents for a refugee child, but many of the countries in need won't allow them to do so because they're gay. The men are willing to pay for flights and provide clothing, if necessary, for three refugee children. Why are we going through all this trouble when there are so many children in the world who need homes, they said. These citizens of Iceland get it. They are living out what Jesus and the Gentile woman teach us. Will our eyes and ears be opened as well? 